Good morning and blessed Advent. Today is Monday, December 11th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. This morning we begin a brand new series that I'd like to call Counting Down to Christmas. Advent is a time of dual focus for Christians. I think primarily we're looking forward in eager anticipation for the return of Christ, to judge the living and the dead, to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. But at the same time, we're counting down the days till Christmas begins, and we get to celebrate Christ's first advent, the culmination of God's promise to send a Savior. And I think there are few better ways to prepare our hearts and minds for the holy days ahead than through our favorite Christmas hymns. So from now until December 22nd, my guests and I will be exploring Christmas hymnody. And today we feature a hymn traditionally called Gabriel's Message, but you probably know it better as hymn 356 in the Lutheran service book, The Angel Gabriel from Heaven Came. Before we get started, I want you to know that Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. They help bring the true message of Christmas around the world through their translating and publishing work. So learn more about what they do on their website at lhfmissions.org. If you have any comments or questions about whatever we discussed today, feel free to email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Be sure to spell it right, P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. You can also send me a message on Facebook, and I'll try to get your comment or your question out on the air. But for now, let's welcome a guest who's been on the show before, and I'm excited to have him back. It's the Reverend Philip Hoppy, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Good morning, Pastor Hoppy. Welcome back to the program. Hey, very glad to be back with you today as we uh, talk about this hymn and the, the message behind it. Yeah, you know, and I've been calling it a Christmas hymn, but this is this is really, I mean, it is Christmas for sure, but kind of like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it has a has an Advent bend to it a little bit, I think. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right there. It's sort of one of those where as you go through the stanzas, uh, you know, by the fourth stanza, for sure, we're at Christmas. But as we begin, uh, we're at Advent or even right at the uh, Annunciation, right, which... Uh, church year kind of, you know, is scheduled a little differently than how we think of Advent. So. Mm-hmm. That's true. And just from your experience as a pastor, have you found that, and I think we, I guess really I'm asking a rhetorical question almost, but have you found that Advent gets lost in the countdown to Christmas? I mean, I was almost hesitant to do this because we often think of Advent as being the countdown to Christmas, but we don't think of it in its other aspect at probably as much as we should, and that is counting down till Christ returns. But how do you celebrate Advent in your congregation, maybe to make those distinctions? Yeah, I think it is kind of always a, a struggle and maybe becoming more so uh, the earlier we sort of begin Christmas in our culture, right? It becomes harder and harder to sort of keep Advent um, at, at, you know, kind of the full nature of that season right before us. Um, you know, I suppose I, I'm pretty intentional at the beginning of services and things of trying to sort of just explain where we are in the church here and how that relates to kind of the readings and the sermon for the day. So I, I suppose that's my main thing. We do have uh, midweek Advent services here as well. And so that gives us a little extra time 
to do that, to think about those things. But it is something that you kind of have to be intentional with, or I think it does just sort of get lost. A lot of people don't even know that Advent is a penitential season, not unlike Lent, but we tend to be a little bit more, uh, I guess, boisterous in our celebrations of it. It doesn't have the same feel as Lent, does it? No, it, it definitely is a time where, you know, I guess I think of it, you know, sort of in Lent and Advent, there they should be times where kind of our meditation upon the things of God increases. Not that we ever want it to be light, but, it, you know, they're both seasons where, okay, let's let's really note that we're heading up to important things and let's prepare for that. And and yeah, I do think there's a slight difference at least between Lent and Advent in the sort of overall attitude, but they're, they're both meant to be very thoughtful, very sort of intentional seasons. Yeah, I, and I would argue that solemn doesn't mean sad or depressing. It just means, you know, serious. You're taking this seriously. Not that we don't take every worship service seriously, but it's good for us to slow down a little bit, reflect on our sins, but of course, most importantly, reflect on God's promises. So the promises of Lent are about how he'll come and save us, but the promises of Advent are about his first Advent and also his second Advent, his coming at the end of time. But uh, just, just you personally, is there anything that you look forward to particularly during Advent and Christmas, something you just really can't wait about it, or or maybe you don't have anything like that. Well, you know, actually, Advent itself, I really do love the the hymns of Advent and even sort of the the tunes that accompany those hymns. I don't know, uh, I can't give you a particular reason. I'm not probably mm-hmm. musically trained enough to give you a reason, but I those tunes just always are striking and sort of calming to me uh, in Advent season. So I I, I do look forward to uh, that and. And I think, you know, just some of the other things, obviously, where uh, hopefully still where people where this season also is marked by a little more time with family, uh, though it, it gets hard to do with all the busyness. But that's another thing I look forward to for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, do you happen to have a favorite Christmas hymn or carol or Advent hymn, I should say? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I'll <laughs> go with Advent here. I, I really do love uh, The King Will Come When Morning Dawns. Uh, we sang that just here last Sunday uh, at our church. And again, there's something about that tune that it, it just feels like you're kind of moving through uh, all the things that are said there. And so that that's definitely a favorite. Um, I I, you know, I like a, a good uh, from heaven above to earth I come will will do me well for Christmas. And I uh, just there's so many good hymns. I guess I I probably tend and maybe, you know, sometimes our lay people don't like this, but I sometimes there's with Christmas carols, it's sort of the ones that aren't just the everyone's go to that kind of become the favorites. And you know, some of those I kind of slip in and, and, you know, I, I've even told people, you know, we're going to do this hymn or that hymn and it's a favorite of mine. So you're going to have to go with me on it, even <laughs> if it's not your favorite. <laughs> that's a, that's a small privilege of being the guy who picks which hymns, you know, that's we get our right. favorites in there. One of my yeah. favorites is O Come, O Come Emmanuel, thoroughly yeah. an Advent hymn. And I like Jesus Christ, thy manger is. I, you know, I, it's not one that I grew up listening to because I didn't grow up Lutheran, but it's a thoroughly Lutheran song, and yeah. um, just it's just beautiful, but kind of hard for people to sing, I, just a little bit if they don't know it. 
Yeah. Yeah. My, my other favorite Christmas hymn would be, you know, of the father's love begotten. And that one too has a thing where if you're not familiar with it, it takes a little bit to get to the point where you're, you know, just able to sing it easily, I think. Yeah. Which is why we have to keep including new hymns. Even if people don't like it, you never know when you might find a new favorite. (laughs) Well, I tell you what, why don't we go ahead and begin in earnest though. If you would start our time off together in prayer, I'd appreciate that. Be happy to. Almighty uh, God, uh, you send to us uh, your only begotten son. Uh, He comes to us in Bethlehem. We look for his coming again in glory. We rejoice in his coming to us in word and sacrament. Bless our study of these hymns that uh, people of faith have crafted throughout the years, uh, that they might only grow our appreciation for the salvation you have brought us in your son. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's get right into it. One of the things you said a moment ago is that the the hymns of Advent and leading up to Christmas and Christmas too sometimes have a different feel to them. And now that's certainly the case with Lenten hymns. I love it when we get into the the minors and the and the the flats and all that kind of I, I'm not very a, a musically accomplished person myself, but I just I just love the um just the tone of them. Well, our hymn today, which we're going to be covering, as I said earlier, it's going to be um, LSB 356. Um, that also has a, a unique, I guess, I, I for lack of a better word, a unique style of tune. Uh, tell us a little bit. What did, I, I did some digging to figure out a little bit of the story behind this hymn. And folks, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to look at the stories behind all the hymns before we dig into the Bible but I didn't find a lot. What did, what did you find? Yeah, there really did not seem to be, especially if we're looking for sort of, uh, what do you want to say, a situation from which this hymn arose. Uh, it seems to be more uh, that the author of this hymn uh, was one who, you know, enjoyed music and theology and, uh, you know, also was able to travel some and uh, best I can tell is, uh, you know, he kind of uh, found himself in the the Basque country there, you know, probably what we think of as in Northeast Spain or Southeast France. And uh, as he was there, you know, I suppose when anyone travels, they're sort of attracted to the things they like in general, right? If you like churches, you're going to, you know, go to a cathedral if you <laughs> see one or whatever. Well, he liked music. And so, Uh, It seems that he came across kind of uh, this hymnody there. And again, as best as I can tell that we we think for sure he kind of took the tune uh, out of a hymnal there for this. And then there's some kind of back and forth on how much he used the text of that same uh, carol. Um, He, you know, some people will say that he, took a lot of it. Um, I know uh, kind of one of our books that our publishing house puts out suggests kind of the opposite, that they think most of uh, the stanzas actually were his own. Uh, But uh, certainly inspired, I think we can say, by this original uh, hymn that he finds, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, he's an Englishman. He goes to work at, at writing this uh, in English and, uh, you know, just, just tries to bring this story of the scriptures 
uh, into this musical setting. And I, you know, sometimes I do think maybe we could use a few more of these kind of hymns in general that sort of just recite the story, right? With a little, we'll talk about this later, a little, you know, artistic flair along the way, but just, you know, just really kind of saying, here's what happened. Um, Because I think sometimes, again, especially on these stories that are more familiar to us, kind of the musical setting causes us to be a little more contemplative uh, about what it's saying, I think. Yeah, I I mean, you know, I never heard it even called Gabriel's Message, but apparently that's the name of it. But we typically call it by the first title, The Angel Gabriel from Heaven Came. So even from the get-go, you see that it's, as you said, it's very no-nonsense. It's just sort of telling you the story. But in a way that even if you couldn't read a Bible, you would be able to hear. I don't know if we actually mentioned the name of the uh, the author. Well, I, sh- I guess I can't say author, really the translator. Um, I, and I'm not sure if you did either, but he was an Anglican priest. Uh, I think we decided off the air, it's, we're going to say Sabine Baring Gould. Now, apologies to someone whose name is S-A-B-I-N-E, if it's not pronounced that way. But he paraphrased that or wrote it or translated it, however you want to say it, in 1895. But the reason why I also brought up the idea of uh, a uniquely sounding hymn is because, well, this tune is unique. It's it's like a folk carol, as you said, from the Basque uh, region in Spain, but it, it definitely has its own its own sort of uh, meter to it that, and we can't sing it. That's isn't that the irony? We can't sing. It. I don't have the license to sing it. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you did you know prep me goes. beforehand, so you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's a it's 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 beautiful and a little haunting, um, mysterious, and we see that in the text of it too. But I think it might be a good idea for us to take just half a second to talk about just in general the event that it is celebrating. This would be a hymn that we could sing on March 25th as much as we can sing sing it in Advent or Lent. But maybe share with the people why that is, what the Annunciation of our Lord is. Yeah, so this, yeah, it definitely does recount uh, what we typically call the Annunciation, which is uh, the angel Gabriel, right, coming uh, down to Mary and letting her know about uh, what is going to happen with her, namely that that she's going to uh, bear a son and and call his name Jesus. Um, so it's this whole event, uh, you know. In one way, this and this probably makes for good art in a sense. Is you know, there's a there's a humility about that story, just sort of this. Rather lowly Mary, you know, not presented with a, a ton of pomp. We'll talk later about some of the phrases in there, uh, but just this virgin girl, uh, young girl, and uh, you know, there, like I said, there's just there's not a lot going on there, and yet we have the angel Gabriel, which uh, is obviously of great note here, um, that comes down and and informs her of this, uh, and of course we get the kind of the simple human part of this, that when this is announced to Mary, she's got to figure out, well, how can that be, right? This is not how uh, things typically work. And so uh, the angel Gabriel will also uh, explain to her in general how it will work, but probably most important, uh, just that it will come to be. Uh, And, uh, you know, that story ends with Mary, of course, uh, hearing this thing, which seems impossible and simply 
saying, let it, be, let it be to me according to your word, right? A great statement of faith. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we get into the text a little bit? And so the way we're going to do this, folks, is I'm just going to read the stanzas, and we'll go stanza by stanza and talk about, well, I guess what it was inspired by. Sometimes we know, in this case, I think we have a very good idea what specific texts inspired the the, uh, lyrics, but we'll also go elsewhere to see how we can flesh it out a little bit. But I'm just going to read it stanza by stanza, this time beginning with stanza one, This is the uh, same translation you'll find in your Lutheran service book. The angel Gabriel from heaven came with wings as drifted snow with eyes as flame. Hail to thee, O lowly maiden Mary, most highly favored lady, Gloria. So here we have, we're introduced to an angel named Gabriel. He comes from heaven and wow, what a description he has bright white wings, just like drifted snow and flaming eyes. That must be some of that poetic license you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely it. Um, I mean, it's it's absolutely beautiful. In fact, you know, I found myself like as you read it, you almost wonder with some of these things, like, am I forgetting a biblical reference that speaks this way? Uh, you know, and I kind of, you know, go back, went back into the scriptures and you're like, oh, I don't see anything particularly. It's sort of, again, it's just the artist doing his thing here, but it does, especially those first two lines and just give us sort of the, I mentioned there's a, there's a humility about the enunciation, but kind of give us the, uh, the, the opposite of that, the, uh, from heaven, uh, view, the glorious view of this, which is, uh, that this angel Gabriel uh, from heaven came. I think if I remember right, it said that in the original carol that this was taken from, uh, Gabriel's name himself was not mentioned and that that kind of came into this uh, through this English translation. Um, but of course, we know from the account itself that this is the angel Gabriel. Uh, and of course, he he comes from heaven, right? Uh, Luke 1 just says that he was sent from God. Um, But of course, you could easily then say, well, obviously we know where God dwells. Uh, So yes, he he came from heaven uh, down to give this uh, important announcement to Mary. Um, You know, the angels uh, with the wings, of course, that's something we see pretty often, uh, particularly uh, at least in in my thinking, and particularly we see those depictions when we're talking about angels sort of surrounding God, his presence, whether that be, uh, you know, on his uh, throne uh, in heaven or whether that be uh, his throne, the Ark of the Covenant and the temple, right? We get these angels with outstretched uh, wings, uh, sometimes, right, kind of almost covering God, you could say, kind of a, a, a almost placing a shelter over him. Um, but there's a, there is a lot of talk about wings uh, with mm-hmm. angels uh, in the Bible. Uh, they're used also for other things, right, to, to sort of show a humility before God, and, and obviously, to, in one sense, too, to move around. Um, but I, I went and tried to see if there was even anything that we really had of white angels, you know, because we do kind of think of most of the angels that probably are sitting on grandma's shelf, right? They, they <laughs> tend to be white angels. Uh, but as far as I could tell, the only reference to kind of white angels is uh, the, the angels there that appear at the resurrection in John chapter 20. And even there, I yeah. think 
I think the idea is that they're sort of wearing white, right? They're they're clad in white. So again, as drifted snow, I don't know if we can, you know, <laughs> biblically that holds up, but it it definitely gives us a a wonderful picture. Uh, the eyes of flame. I thought that one was interesting. It's another one where I thought, well, there has to be a biblical reference to this, and unless I'm missing it in regards to angels, really fiery eyes. The only one really that is said to have fiery eyes in the Bible is is Jesus himself. Uh, and it's only uh, in those sort of apocalyptic sort of passages of scripture in, in Daniel 10, and then several places in Revelation, um, uh, the Son of Man is spoken of as having fiery eyes. Um, so there's almost a sense here in which uh, a characteristic of God is sort of attributed to the angels. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was thinking, um, for those of you who are on YouTube, uh, if you've ever been to Lutheran Satire, Hans Feeney does a good job with that. Uh, he has a seven-year-old video, and it's just amazing, called Martin Luther Yells About Inferior Anglican Christmas Hymns. And he <laughs> says, instead of focusing on theology, the British love meditating on snow, silence, and livestock. Well, I'm not making I'm not making a value judgment on this particular hymn, but you do kind of see that a little bit. You see them taking, I guess, themes that they would be aware of and applying them to the situation. And so in that way, I, I kind of get it. Like you talked about the symbolism of wings. You talked about the brightness of white representing just goodness and glory and from God. It kind of connects us to the brightness of Jesus or the clothing of the angels. Even the eyes of fire, it's, you know, being messengers of God, we could probably make that connection. But but for a hymn that basically just goes through the story, you have to expect some some poetic license, and, and this is where he puts it. Um, but I think it's great. It's, it is beautiful, and I think it does give us a sense of mystery. Now, with that said, a lot of the times when the angels appear— Yes, we do have images like in Ezekiel of angels with multiple wings and multiple heads and multiple eyes. But most of the time, and please correct me if I'm wrong, when angels appear to humans, they typically appear in some sort of human-like form. And I don't necessarily know that includes wings. I, I wonder where that came from. Yeah, no, it is a it is an interesting thought. And, and certainly here, we're not really told... Um, anything about how Gabriel appears. I know in one thing I was reading, um, they kind of said, you know, that um, maybe she doesn't actually, Mary does not react so strongly. So maybe this is a more kind of a yeah, normal appearance in the sense of maybe like a man here, you know. Uh, but right away, obviously, the angel does say to her, do not be afraid. Uh, and we were told she was, you know, greatly troubled, not at the appearance of the angel, but what uh, what he said to her. Um, so there's there's definitely some of that going on. But yeah, I don't I don't know either exactly where the kind of distinction or, or again, even when we see angels, do we want to say that that's part of their sort of um, actual essence? I mean, they're, they're spiritual beings, right? So we have to be careful there to say these spiritual beings have wings. I'm not even sure what that means, right? <laughs> um, right. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, I guess overall, we say the angels appear as God needs them to, right? Uh, probably depending on uh, what he seeks to accomplish by his sending of them. And I'm by I'm obviously not <laughs> familiar with the inner workings of God's infinite mind, but I guess I could surmise that if he's sending an angel to 
a young lady of about 15 who Mary might uh, fit that description, he's probably not going to send his scariest looking angel or have them appear in a way that sends her running. But at the same time, for the sake of completeness, let me read a little bit from Luke, verse 26 through 29. Very familiar story to most of you. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Verse 30 says that he told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And he continues to tell her what's going to happen. What we have here in both the text and in the stanza is, um, well, hail Mary, full of grace. (laughs) The Lord is with you. Uh, I thought we Lutherans don't like that kind of stuff. Uh, Take us through, I guess, this greeting of Mary. And and Mary is to be considered blessed, but I, I think there's a good way for us to understand this. Would you take us through that? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I think unfortunately, usually, uh, you know, we we either have people that place so much emphasis on Mary, as we often see kind of uh, in certain at least circles of Roman Catholic piety. Um, and then we have uh, kind of a reaction to that where we don't want to say hardly anything of her at all. I mean, even sometimes almost you know, she appears in the Christmas program, but then we get rid of her very quickly, right? And we don't even, in a lot of the other stories or we're thinking about Christ's life, we don't think about Mary uh, very much at all. And so, you know, uh, certainly we can say like Martin Luther in his day uh, certainly had uh, a very healthy dose of respect for Mary and urged other people to honor her because of the role uh, that she was given, um, and, and that yeah, hail Mary! There, that that kind of phrase is really uh, just this phrase that's sort of a, a general greeting uh, that would be made uh, to anyone. Um, but here, you know, again, it's been turned into this prayer that we hear, um, you know, not only said by people at times, but spoken of. I'm, I'm never sure how. Uh, the football pass, you know, where you throw at the end of the game, <laughs> why that's a Hail Mary. I've never quite got that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. but there is definitely this proper sense in which um, we see the angel greeting her and we don't, you know, hesitate to uh, repeat his words. We're not afraid of saying, right, Hail Mary. It really just means kind of hello, Mary, yeah, or like, God's, hey. yeah, God's grace to you, Mary. However, you know, uh, you might say that. Um, and I mean, so, he, sir- sorry, sorry, interject, but yeah, yeah, he has to say something. I, I think, I think because it's antiquated language, we attach it so much to the, like the Ave Maria or the, the Hail Mary prayer, but he, that's what he says. He says, Hey Mary, you know, I think the Greek word is if I'm not mistaken, Kyrie, which is just right. like, like, Hey, <laughs> look at me. Hey, okay. Yeah. Now I got your attention. How's yeah. It going? Uh, yeah. I mean, if anything kind of, as I understand that word, it has a little tinge of just happiness to it right uh, sure. uh, a rejoicing so there's it's sort of like a it's a cheerful greeting i guess is how i'd put it right it's not a somber greeting it's a cheerful greeting um and you know like i said there i don't know that so much mary reacts to that greeting as she does the phrase the lord is with you right mm-hmm. well what does that mean exactly especially when an angel 
um, is uh, visiting you. And and again, in modern Christianity, um, there's a proper sense in which this could be okay, but we're very, I think, almost too comfortable with the idea of God and his presence, right? We just speak about that, like just, yeah, God, come and make your presence known and, and everything will be great. Well, that's that's only true if you're covered in the that's blood true. of Jesus, right? Otherwise it's not. And so she's troubled at first by that statement as almost everybody in the Bible, when God or one of his angels comes, right? There is an initial fear. And it's kind of that, think of Peter in the boat, you know, Lord, I'm a sinful man uh, from a people of sinful uh, lips, right? Um, It's that recognition that we don't deserve to stand in the presence of God. And so she is wondering exactly what all that uh, will mean for, for her. Um, the full of grace part, if I can say just a little bit on that, right? We well, get actually, that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you. The reason why okay. is because we're up against a break. <laughs> so we're going to take our break. Folks, if you you want to hang out, you want to hear what uh, Pastor Hoppy has to say, because this is important. You know, Barry, I think, does have a very special connection to the salvation history, but the focus is on how God uses her. Um, we'll talk about that in a lot more when we get back. So folks, don't go anywhere. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Philip Hoppe, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. And together, we're counting down Christmas by contemplating Christmas hymns according to the scriptures. Today, we're talking about uh, 356 in your Lutheran service book, Angel, The Angel Gabriel from Heaven Came. Before we head back into our hymn and our text, I just want to remind you again that feedback, questions, comments, concerns, complaints can all be emailed to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just uh, send me a friend request or shoot me a message, and any of those methods can get your question or comment out on the air. Well, uh, Pastor, before the break, I rudely interrupted you. You were in the middle of a good thought. I I want to keep that thought going because we're talking about Mary and some of our I guess Lutheran sensibilities that make us uncomfortable giving Mary too much credit. Well, at the same time, Mary did have a sense of humility and obedience that's worth remembering and imitating. Please keep going with your point. Yeah. So we really, you know, in the story, we kind of get these two phrases. The first is that, you know, that Hail Mary, uh, uh, O favored one is how the, the English standard uh, version puts it. And then later, uh, of course, um, Mary is told that you've found favor with God. And this has been something that has sort of been uh, 
back and forth uh, in sort of how people speak about this. And again, you can, um, you know, you read different commentators and one will kind of swing wildly to one side and one will swing to another. I'm going to kind of urge us to use this as just a way of understanding what uh, the Christian life is really about, what righteousness is really about. And so, um, you know, this this idea of uh, Hail Mary full of grace, that comes from a Latin translation of this. Uh, and as you might know, the Roman Catholics, right, uh, base much of their uh, theology and stuff on this Latin translation of the Bible. And so, therefore, when they hear that, and even when you hear those words there, it really sounds like this is just about Mary, right? She's she's full of something good, and that's why she's been chosen. Now, we should say that initial uh, part there, which occurs in verse 28, is very similar to a phrase in Ephesians 1, 6, where uh, Paul is obviously and explicitly just talking about to be full of grace. How does that happen to you? Well, it happens to you because Christ's uh, righteousness is poured out on you freely by God. That's how you become full of grace. And so first and foremost, and as Lutherans, we probably always will get around to this side of the coin. We want to make clear that no one is full of grace by their own doing, their own merit, their own anything, right? It's solely a result of God's gift to them. And so therefore, when we read this, we're not so much heaping praise upon Mary as we are praise upon the God who has gifted Mary. And yet, if I can, the other side of this is the other place that we get kind of this someone finding favor with God is actually a story much, much earlier in the scriptures, and that's the story of Noah. And Noah is described this way as well as one who finds favor with God. And yet, if you read that story, it's kind of, he says it in the context, right? He says, you know, basically he's um, sad that he's made everything else on earth. Uh, and then we meet Noah, right? And this phrase is used that he was one that found favor with God. And then as you go into the next part of that uh, biblical story with Noah there, it really does make a contrast between the life of the wicked, what they are doing, and what Noah is doing. And that Noah was not only a righteous person because God had gifted him with that, that was true, but he also lived out that righteousness in a particular noticeable way, right? And for you and me too, this is important to understand, right? That God coming to us in Jesus, God bringing us salvation, God giving us the righteousness of Christ, uh, in one sense, we can speak of that as God just sort of declaring something to be true. But we know that it's even more than that. It's never less than that, but it's also something he actually changes in us, right? He actually gives us the righteousness of God. And then that righteousness is lived out in this new life uh, in the New Testament times, right? As we receive that new life in holy baptism, receive the gift of the Spirit, then we live out that righteous life. So I don't think with Mary uh, that saying that this is all God's doing 
uh, neglects the fact then that we, or, or, or doesn't stop us, I should say, from saying that Mary also seemed to be of particular faith and piety, right? That there was something about her that she was living out this righteousness in a way that was uh, exemplary, right? An example to us. And I, I don't think those two have to be set apart. I don't know exactly what your take is there, but but just to remember that the grace of God is something that's actually given to us. The righteousness of God is given to us. And so it does impact our lives and how we live. Well, I haven't heard anything I can disagree with, that's for sure. But one thing I guess I will bring out, though, is that in a way then, actually in a very real way, you you at home, you could go to church on Sunday and you could say, Hail Bob, full of grace, right? Hail Irma, full of grace. Hail Linda, full of grace, right? We are all recipients of God's grace through, of course, his life, death, and resurrection, but we receive those things through baptism and the sacrament. I mean, the grace as you said, it's it's the focus is on the giver rather than the receiver. But, but, and I really do appreciate the point you made, how many times does Jesus say things like, go and sin no more, or comments on the righteousness of someone's life, or even in our traditions of the church to look back upon those whose, whose lives certainly weren't without sin, but, but were exemplary examples, things for us to follow. Christ is followed by Paul to whom we imitate. So I, I do, I think we're, we shouldn't be so nervous as Lutherans or as Christians to say there's a room for <laughs> personal piety and, and very much. Perhaps Mary demonstrated this in an exemplary way. Yeah. And I mean, one thing, you know, we, you brought up before, right. But, uh, you know, we don't know exactly the age of Mary here, no. but a fairly young girl. Right. And you just, sometimes you do, uh, even at that age, right. You meet these kids who are sort of almost, um, matured in their faith beyond the rest of their peers. Let's put it that way, right? That they they have a real devotion to God and the things of God that sort of some of the other kids, not that, they, again, they're not full of grace in the sense that they're Christians, uh, but they just haven't really, you know, uh, come to that fullness of appreciation and and uh, what do you want to say, dedication to God in that sense of, in just how that impacts their daily life. Um, and so, again, I, I think we can say both. And even, you know, to go to your uh, story there about kind of going into church, even there in the congregation, right, not just the saints of old, but there are those particular people we have in our own congregations who are marvelous examples of certain things, you know, uh, Maybe they went through just great tragedy, and yet they still persevere with a, a kind of joyous attitude where they go, right? It's We don't need to be afraid of that to say, hey, like you said, whatever, hey, Linda, hey, whatever, yeah, right, uh, right. full of grace in that way too, right? That God's grace is evident in their lives as they live them, uh, not just in his pronouncement of it, but in what he's actually working in them. Uh, every stanza ends with that. It's not quite a refrain, but it it does repeat the, the most highly favored maiden, most highly favored maiden. It says that each time at the end. So I guess in that sense, it is a refrain. But but we have this full of grace talk or highly favored talk. Highly favored does, in my opinion, lean more toward the God saw something in Mary that was special. And I don't have a problem talking that way so long as it doesn't go so far as to say that Mary somehow was sinless. Um, <laughs> right. 
And I think that's what you're getting at. And I think it's a good advice. Um, let's, uh, let's move on through the text because now we're coming into the second stanza. Let me find my notes. Here we go. For know a blessed mother thou shalt be, all generations laud and honor thee. Thy son shall be Emmanuel by seers foretold, most highly favored lady, Gloria. So here we have more of the story, but we have some new language, this idea of all generations will call you blessed, I guess, if I could use the language from the Bible. That's not from um, the angel Gabriel, is it? No, it's certainly not. And that's kind of what's interesting about this particular stanza uh, is just how these things are kind of drawn together here. And again, in a way that almost draws you into the scriptures to say, wait a second, is where does that come from? Or where is this coming but this is this great pronouncement, right, that all generations are going to call Mary blessed. Um, and again, if we were to stop, <laughs> we would be trying to sort of fight against what God uh, has promised here, right? If we're not lauding and honoring her, if we're not blessing her in that sense, uh, we would not be doing what God tells us rightly uh, we should do. Um, so yeah, there we have that, this idea. And again, tied to that, and this is what the great thing about kind of an artist is again, why? Why laud and honor? Well, why is because she's going to be a blessed mother, right? Uh, she's going to have this son, Emmanuel, this son, which was foretold uh, way back by uh, the prophet Isaiah, not to say not others, but particularly in Isaiah 7, 14, where we have this talk of the virgin giving birth uh, to one named Emmanuel. Right. Well, and we have, of course, her visit to Elizabeth, which is where some of that prayer, the Hail Mary prayer, also comes from. Uh, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then uh, Elizabeth goes on to talk about how the uh, baby John leapt within her when she came, or when Jesus came near. I, so we have this language of blessing Mary. Uh, what it means to bless is also something I think that we have to think about. But we consider her blessed, but probably more mm, pertinent than that is that phrase that you brought up, thy son shall be Emmanuel. Now that's the language of, of uh, the hymn writer here, but we even have the language of Elizabeth, you're right, you're the mother of my Lord. Maybe it's worth talking about uh, Theotokos. Yeah, right. So yeah, this, this idea that in the history of the church, the church has had no trouble going as far as to say that Mary is the mother of God. And in, in some people's ears, that uh, has a, a, you know, a, almost like it's almost too much for them. They say, wait a second, right? God is without beginning. And if Mary's the mother of God, it almost sounds like she's the, the source of God. Well, I always say to say that Mary is the mother of God is not to say so much about Mary, though it does, but it's really to say something about the fruit of her womb, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus, he is truly God. In one way, right, he is the reason here why the angel says, 
the Lord is with you. Now, we don't know exactly the exact timing or how, you know, what was the moment at which Jesus was inside Mary's womb, but literally the Lord is going to be with her in the sense of the Lord God is taking flesh and now is dwelling inside her womb. Um, that's how the Lord is with her. And because of that, she does give birth to God, right? Um, it, again, it almost you're almost afraid to say it, but in that sense, it's perfectly true. Now, you know, we could always correct if people took that phrase and ran it in a way that would go counter to the scriptures, we would say, no, 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 uh, that's not what that phrase is about. But the phrase is really to say something about the incarnation, and then about, again, why Mary is thought of as so blessed, even if there is something, as we talked about, that was particularly noteworthy about her before this, in one sense, all that fades away now, right? What makes right. her uh, to be noticed, to be favored, is the fact that she is the mother of the Messiah, the mother of the incarnate uh, God. Yeah, I mean, even if Mary, as we surmise, that she had some perhaps special qualities or rather just a faithfulness to God that was a perhaps above and beyond, and, and God sought her out for her faithfulness, and we're going to see that here in a minute in the next stanza. But once Jesus comes, you, you, everything pales in comparison to that anyway, which isn't that the Christian life? Isn't that John the baptizer saying, I must decrease so that they can increase? Where yeah. logic runs rampant with this, and it should be ministerial to the word, is our Roman Catholic friends, and I'm not trying to pick on them, but this is one of their tenets that we disagree with. Our Roman Catholic friends will say, okay, well, reason dictates then that if she wasn't there and God didn't use her to bring Christ along, then the Christ wouldn't be here, and therefore she is uh, important to the, to the event, and she is a co-redemptrix. Without her, we wouldn't have Christ, and without Christ, we wouldn't have forgiveness of sins. To me, it's you could easily say then that Pontius Pilate is a co-redeemer <laughs> because if he hadn't sentenced him to the cross, we wouldn't. I, I, I think it's just taking it a step too far is what I'm saying. I, so I want people at home to be very clear that our guests, neither our guests nor I are, are saying anything other than what the Bible says, that she's a mother who gave birth to the very son of God, 100% God, 100% man. Um, now, we, we don't have, it's not like this was a surprise. We have a, uh, uh, back in Isaiah seven fourteen, I want to read that. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. By the way, if you've never read the whole thing of the sign of Emmanuel, it's really great because basically uh, God is talking to Ahaz the king and says, ask for a sign. And he's like, oh, no, I'll never ask for a sign. And then the Lord goes, or actually, I guess this is the prophet Isaiah says, okay, fine. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Don't ask. <laughs> right. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And here we have that word Emmanuel, spelled differently with an I except an E, but it's the same word, means God with us. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i serving a congregation right now in vacancy that is a I am, you know, uh, Emmanuel. And yet, it's interesting that we looked back when the congregation was founded, and it was an E back then. So it still happens, uh, still happens today uh, that these two get uh, flipped there. And to be honest, I can't remember, I don't know if you do what I assume one comes from one linguistic root and another comes from a different language, uh, why we have the difference in spelling. But, but 
in the end, that doesn't matter. What matters is what this phrase Emmanuel means, right? Mm -hmm. Which again, like I said, you know, it means God with us, which is again, exactly what Gabriel says to Mary, the Lord is with you, right? And I mean, how true that is. I mean, you could almost say that that's the announcement to the whole world on the day of our Lord's birth, right? Is not just to Mary, but to the entire world. The Lord is now with you. He's here in the flesh. Well, I know it doesn't matter, but the transliterations are different. The I version comes from the Hebrew word Emmanuel, which means with us, and El for God, of course, Elohim. And then Emmanuel uh, is from the translation, tra- sorry, transliteration of the Greek, Emmanuel which again is essentially the same word and they're all translations uh, transliterations of each other but as you said it doesn't matter Jesus comes that's the point and then Mary's response though which is featured next in stanza 3 but it's also featured in the biblical story it's important for us let's look at it then gentle mary meekly bowed her head to me be as it pleaseth god she said my soul shall loud and magnify god's holy name most highly favored lady gloria so she, I don't know how meekly she bows her head, but she does say to me, be it as it pleaseth God. She really imitates her son in saying, not my will, but yours. That's tremendous faith, especially considering the circumstances around what we're talking about. Remember, this is a, a young lady who's now going to be pregnant in a precarious situation. Yeah, it is. And it really teaches us also, again, that one of the chief things about the Christian life that we need to take to heart is that to, um, you know, walk with Christ is to walk humbly with him, right? To uh, submit ourselves to him, uh, not out of a sense of fear, but out of a sense of understanding, one, that he's our father that loves us, and two, understanding that all his ways are good. And so when he says something, we don't have to ponder whether it's good. We can simply yield to it. And here, I guess then I would say, too, to go back to a little bit of our former conversation, sometimes when we think about saints, uh, and particularly as Perhaps the Roman Catholic tradition, um, you know, puts this forward. We think about thing, people that have done particularly miraculous things, right? What if, right, what Mary is favored for is simply this humility before God, right? It certainly would, would match with the rest of the scriptures, right? That you can't enter the kingdom of God lest you become uh, like a child, one who is humble and receives Uh, passively in that way. And so perhaps this is the very thing about Mary's character is that she's just going to receive this. And again, it's an amazing thing that she just would accept that this is going to happen because it's miracle after miracle to make it happen. Mm, I'm just reflecting on what you're saying here. Uh, I'm pondering it in my heart, to use Mary language. You know, the reason why, though, is because I think it's really important what you just said. You know, the Christian life is about being faithful in reception of God's gifts. And so often, because we like to quantify it according to the way the world works, we think the Christian life is most exemplified by feeding the most hungry people, clothing the most naked, uh, uh, winning the most souls for Jesus, being the most prolific theologian, whatever, whatever your aspirations are. Not all of which are bad, mind you, but we do see here sort of 
I don't want to say perfect in the sense that she's sinless, but kind of a, a perfect example of what it looks like to be a Christian, to say, despite all the trials and tribulations that are going to come from what God is doing for me, I still know that it's good, and that I'm going to submit to his will. To me, be it as it pleaseth God. Th- that That is a uh, something worth emulating, for sure. Yeah, no doubt it is. And it's, um, you know, again, something for us to continue uh, to seek to emulate, right? To, uh, I always think in my mind that it is one of the chief kind of ways, you know, someone is maturing in their faith when they come to understand that God's ways are good and that they just then submit to those ways uh, just almost as a matter of fact. And again, when we see these people in real life that do this, uh, they're generally not people that are going to get you know, a statue put up of them in town. And yet they are people to marvel at, right? How they will just kind of ignore what their mind even might tell them or what others around them might tell them. And they just say, no, this is God's good way. I'm going to walk in it. Well, the very last uh, verse, which we've come to, the very last stanza, it it almost seems, and it, it still is a great verse, but it almost seems like He's like, well, you know, I got to wrap this up uh, and we can't leave it without Jesus being born. So here we go. Stanza four of her Emmanuel, the Christ was born in Bethlehem all on a Christmas morn and Christian folk throughout the world will ever say. And then the refrain, most highly favored lady, Gloria. So, yeah, it kind of wraps things up pretty quick. Yeah, no, it really does. And, you know, uh, it's the kind of thing where I suppose this makes the people that put together hymnals go, now, wait a second, is this an Advent hymn or is this a Christmas (laughs) hymn? Which section, you know, do we put it in? Uh, But you're certainly right. And a lot of our hymn writers do this. They kind of you know, want to kind of finish the story for us. And it can, those of us that like to place hymns in their proper liturgical season, it can kind of cause some troubles. It's sort of like some of the hymns that mention the resurrection, you know, and we're singing those in Lent, like, I don't know, the the lamb, if you know that hymn, right? There's a whole last verse, he's risen, he's risen. It seems out of place. But here it really does take us to the whole thing, to let us know that this word of Gabriel is Mm. true. I think that's why we have this final verse is to say all of this did happen uh, just as it pleaseth God, right? This is what happened. It happened on Christmas morning. It happened in Bethlehem. And then the great thing I think about just how the art is done here, and now it's not uh, you know just Gabriel or just the angels uh, singing Most Highly Favored Lady or singing Gloria, which we really didn't mention, is you know a part of the proclamation of the angels right. on Christmas Day. Um, we're invited into that, right? We're invited to say, Mary, you are highly favored. Why? Again, because you're the mother to the Christ child. Uh, and then we say glory to God in the highest, right? Uh, just as the angels did. Well, you know, we've come to the end of our time, but, you know, I got to tell you, we, I'd like to study theology always using hymns. We, we got to do all kinds of different topics. I think it was a great first episode. I'm so thankful that you joined us today, and I learned a lot, too. Uh, folks, you've been listening to the Reverend Philip Hoppe. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Brother, thanks for being on the show. Any last words or anything else you want the folks to know before we head home? Nope, just take some time in this season, slow down, uh, prepare for the Lord to come, and and he will. He'll come and save us. 
Well, that sounds good to me. In fact, it segues right into what our next, well, again, this is still in the Advent section of the LSB, but tomorrow the countdown continues with LSB 357. O come, O come, Emmanuel. There's Emmanuel again, uh, this time also with an E. Like our hymn today, it's another Advent-focused song that connects the anticipation that the world had for a Messiah, or at least those who were faithful, with the prophecies of old. So come you, faithful, and join us as we wait for the Emmanuel to come. Um, And we're going to explore the story behind this hymn and dig into the scriptures to unpack what it teaches us. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.